On Message is a podcast from MHP Communications. Hello, and welcome to the special edition of the On Message podcast. I'm Kate Pogson, head of MHP's health communications team. I've been allowed out of the office, and we're at Millbank Tower in Westminster for the launch of our guide to the networked age. In a moment, we will be hearing from a brilliant panel of experts from a world of communications, politics, the media and academia. But before that, I wanted to ask my colleague, Nick Barron, Deputy CEO of MHP, to explain what we mean when we talk about the networked age. So the networked age is the product of digital technology which has created tribes. Human psychology hasn't changed in millions of years, but what has changed is digital technology's ability to connect tribes in new ways. Search is making it more easy for us to confirm and find information that we already believe, thus reinforcing our own opinions and making us more confident of our own views. Social is making us more likely to cluster with like-minded people and shut ourselves off from alternative viewpoints. Algorithms are serving up more of the content that we already already like and rather than challenging our views. And then finally, the digital age more broadly is building a knowledge economy where tribes of people are coming together physically. So people are much more mobile than they used to be and they are living amongst people like them rather than in more mixed uh, societies. So it's creating much more tribal echo chamber environment in which communicators have to operate. So the networked age is something that we've identified, but it's not our own principle. But what we have developed at MHP are three rules to help communicators best adapt their comms to the networked age. So what are those three rules? Yeah, well, in, in the networked age, you have to understand people because people are the transmitters and um, the way a story is heard is very different often to the way it is told. So we came together with uh, the Effective Brain Lab, an academic called Dr. Tali Sharot, who um, leads the Effective Brain Lab at UCL. Uh, she's been working with us to develop three rules over the last nine months or so. The first of those rules is that who you are is as important as what you do. So our clients have to have the facts on their side, they have to absolutely be doing the right thing, but just as importantly they have to be seen to be doing the right thing, they have to be projecting the values of the, of the tribe they wish to uh, engage with. So it is about character, it's about motivation, it's about purpose and values, all those things, that, those are increasingly important to people. In a tribal world you have to be part of the tribe, so that's rule one. Rule two is that um, influencers and passions spread ideas, again it's not a revelation that influences influence. Um, but what's really important is the types of people who influence. Um, similarity becomes increasingly important. Um, there's lots of debate about the role of experts, um, whether people listen to experts anymore. The science suggests that people do still value expertise, but they attach greater weight to people who share the same values and lifestyle and preferences to themselves. So we have to find ways of, again, appearing to be like the people we're trying to uh, reach, or, or better still, actually being like the people we're trying to reach. Networks transmit passion and emotion above all else. Anger, joy, certainty, you know, that's what um, networks feed off. They don't really do a great job of transmitting moderation. So we have to have the facts on our side, but we have to marry that one with an emotive story and emotive language um, in order to engage. Okay, so what's the third rule? The final rule of uh, the network age is that you can't win an argument, uh, but you can win an outcome. That's actually probably the oldest of the new rules, and in a sense it's always been true. But what it means is people are incredibly resistant to changing their minds, and in the digital age, very easy to confirm what you already believe. So therefore, we have to find ways not just to 
telling people they're wrong and contradicting their arguments and batting them overhead with facts, as communicators often try to do, but listening, uh, which often communicators are quite poor at, aligning with, uh, with the tribe we're trying to engage with and showing that we share the same values and ultimate outcomes, we just have different ideas about how to get there. So it's about um, essentially becoming friends with the people we're trying to influence because um, friends influence friends. So why does this matter for MHP and why does it matter for our clients? Well, our work began back in 2016, actually, when we started to wonder why all of the classic strategies deployed by communications weren't working anymore. You know, when the weight of celebrity opinion, expert opinion and, and, and media consensus argued in favour of Remain, and yet the public voted in majority Brexit. It's, it's the year when, with vastly better resources, Hillary Clinton was beaten by Donald Trump. And it seemed to us that that was time for a reappraisal about how communications worked. And yet, communicators around us seem to be putting their heads in the sand and, and uh, sort of refusing to engage and instead seeing conspiracy or blaming the audience. And it's not our job as communicators to blame the audience. It's our job as communicators to engage the audience. So we started to look at uh, the psychology behind it in the networked age, clearly um, how people think and share information is, is fundamentally important to what we do. And not just in the political sphere, but actually across all of our work. So in capital markets, there are new types of influencers emerging uh, who are having significant impact on, on share prices and much more activist shareholder base. In the health space, again, alternative voices are coming to the fore. There was the sector where there's a canary in the coal mine in terms of the struggle of authority to um, engage people on a factual basis. Uh, in corporate, reputations are increasingly being shaped by sort of identity politics. Uh, in the brand space, as we've seen recently with the Nike campaign for, uh, with Colin Kaepernick, um, brands are increasingly having to act and think like, like political campaigners. So right across our client portfolio, this has profound consequences for the work we do and so it was really important to try and understand what was going on and what we could do about it. Well thank you Nick for that really useful explanation of the networked age. I'm sure you'd encourage everyone to go onto our new look website mhpc.com to find out more. So thank you. It is utterly my pleasure and privilege to facilitate this panel discussion and I'm delighted to be joined on stage by people who have identified, analysed, um, interpreted the rules of the networked age in academia, in journalism, in politics and in the corporate world. So an opportunity for us to look under the bonnet of the roles of the networked age or the hood for our American colleagues to see how we need to do things a little bit differently. So I'm delighted to be joined on stage by Tally, mm -hmm. uh, Tom Baldwin, a journalist, for former Labour advisor, uh, director of communications for the People's Vote uh, campaign and author of Control-Alt-Delete, which is available at the back. We have Professor Matthew Goodwin, uh, University of Kent, a senior visiting professor at Chatham House and author of the book National Populism, Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, also available at the back. And Kasia Casey, my ultimate boss, global CEO, newly inaugurated uh, global CEO of Engine, but to my knowledge, not the author of any books that are available no at the back. <laughs> not yet. We all have a novel in us, apparently. So, Tally, I'm going to turn to you first, if that's okay. It was your work which inspired this investigation and the work of um, MHP into the networked age. What role does human psychology have and its understanding to us as communicators and how we shape our campaigns? Um, 
Yeah, so obviously a huge role, because what you're trying to do is where you're trying to change a brain in order to change a mind. Um, so understanding the rules by which um, we form beliefs and we take in information and we seek information where influence is kind of the bread, bread and butter of what communication is. So to me, it's obvious that the two, two go together. You know, one thing to remember is that we have rules, but it's not like physics. Um, so that's a caveat to, to say now. These are things that you can find in most individuals in most situations, but of course, a lot of things matter because there's a lot of rules that come together. So it matters who you're talking to, what their state of mind is, um, you know, the context. So for example, one thing that, that we talk a lot about in my own lab is this <laughs> idea that um, people tend to take in surprisingly good information better than surprisingly bad information. So um, the example of Clinton and Trump is an example of that. When you give people unexpected good news, like, oh, you're less likely to get cancer than you thought, um, you're more likely to get that promotion, they take in the information quite well when you tell them, I'm not sure if you're going to get that promotion or your likelihood of cancer is higher than what you thought. Um, they don't take it as much. However, if you stress someone out, that then changes. Um, so, for example, we brought people into our lab and we wanted to stress them out. Um, and then we gave them our usual experiments where we give them good news, we give them bad news, and we see how it changed their beliefs. The moment that they got stressed, they started learning more from negative information. Right? So this bias that we usually talk about disappears. And that uh, makes sense if you think about public stressful events like market collapse, terror attacks, um, natural disasters. Those situations usually cause stress around the world. Even if the terrorist attack is halfway around the world, people still get stressed. And then they start taking in the negative information that's coming in, and there's a lot usually coming in. Um, and that influences them quite a bit, and they can actually become overly pessimistic. Um, so this is just one example of how there's a lot of specialties to, you know, obviously the human mind, and nothing is black and white, and we really need to think about the person, the context, their state of mind. A lot to think about. And Tom, I'm actually going to come to you because Tally's point around uh, sort of negative and sort of stressful messages, um, I think, plays into what we hear in a lot of sort of politic discourse. If we take ourselves back to the Brexit campaign and thinking about some of the messages that came out of Camp Remain, it was that sort of, you know, project fear. You know, if you were to go back, thinking about the rules of influence, thinking about the networked age, if we were to take you back two and a half years and think about that campaign, how might you use some of those insights? What might you do differently? Um, I think there's, there's three things. There's always three, aren't there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, I mean, I think the first, first thing is what the Stronger In campaign failed to do was make an emotional connection. And I think possibly one of the truer things, possibly even the only true thing that Aaron Banks has ever said, is that the Remain campaign was just fact, 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 fact. Now, facts do matter, but so do emotions. I think that's very, very clear, particularly in this networked information age. And so I, I think the Remain campaign failed to make an emotional case for Europe. It's not, it's, it's not good enough just to say, you're going to be £3,434 worse off. I think you have to say, look, you know, you have to make a case for Europe and... So, you know, if you're going to be born any point in the last 250,000 years of brutal history of our species, to be born in the European Union is actually a pretty good place to be born. And the idea that with Trump in the White House, Putin in the Kremlin, China on the rise, nationalism on the march, 
Britain would want to leave that, even actively undermine it, I think is very, very scary. And I, I think that emotional connection we failed to make. The second thing is, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about who you are matters. A campaign led by David Cameron and George Osborne had a certain appeal if you're a Conservative voter in 2015. If you're a Labour voter in the north of England, it didn't have a great deal of appeal. And I think the Remain campaign mistakenly allowed itself to be seen as the establishment, the elite. And so when, you know, when I'm, part of, I'm now part of the People's Vote campaign, I'm absolutely determined that we sort of, you know, we make it clear that there's a Brexit elite now, they're in charge. Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg, some of them moving their money abroad to escape the impact of Brexit, some of them trying to get passport, EU passports for their kids. They're the elite, and we're the people going to the elite and saying, you screwed up over the last two years. So, so you, you know, we have to have different voices and we have to be communicating in a different way. Now, is that angrier? Is that more insurgent? Does that reflect the network age? Possibly. It doesn't mean we start telling lies like the Leave campaign did. I think you can be fact-based and insurgent. I think you can be younger, edgier, without breaking rules or undermining the norms of democracy. But I do think we need edge. And one of the best things about the People's Vote campaign, and you know, I will be like a stuck record about it, is the young people. I mean, like, yeah, they sit at our top table and they challenge us. They call us out for casual sexism, racism, all the things that white middle-aged men like me do. And I think it is giving us edge and, and, and power. And the final thing is social media. Both sides spent quite big on social media in 2016. But how you spend on social media is absolutely vital in modern political communications. You know, political internet advertising is the most lethal weapon that exists in politics now. I think you can do it right. I think you can do it wrong. I think you can do it illegally. Um, and you know, I'm determined that we do it in the right way. But you know, in my book, Control or Delete, one of my big takeaways is that we should ban social media advertising in politics because I think it is so powerful, like we do on broadcast. And what have I been doing the last two months? I've been trying to raise £2 million for social media advertising <laughs> on the internet. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, but we'll do it in a nice way. Yeah. Rule five, do as I say, not as I do. Um, Professor Goodwin, let's sort of pick up on that point. So you're a senior visiting professor at Chatham House. How can politicians aim to have a broader base and engage more with people that maybe don't think that politics is, is for them? Well, I think that's a, a really big question. I mean, I, I was looking at the polling yesterday on Labour just because of the Labour conference, um, and this sort of brings it home. I mean, we are obviously in that world where we probably are following every development quite closely, particularly with regard to Brexit or with regard to party politics. Um, but the polling yesterday suggested that around 80% of the British population had never even heard of Barry Gardner. About 50% had never heard of John McDonnell. Uh, the shadow Labour Chancellor, uh, and somewhere between 30 and 45 percent um, had not heard of other uh, front, front bench uh, members of the Labour Party. And there is, I think, a really big disconnect, um, which, which is difficult for business and also for, for politicians to overcome. But I think also that the messengers are changing. You know, we all know politics is a very low trust environment. Um, and one of the things that I talk about, at least, is so I get a lot of calls from the city and, and people say, well, actually, we're not concerned so much about Brexit anymore. Uh, we're concerned about Corbyn and why Corbyn's policies are so popular and nothing we say seems to be cutting through. 
um, because they've got a messenger problem, because business is, is struggling to cut through in comms in the same way that mainstream politicians are struggling to cut through too. And that distrust environment has been coming for 40, 50 years. If you look to the US, for example, trust basically starts to tank after Vietnam, around the time of Watergate Vietnam, and then trust basically goes off a cliff. So I'm sympathetic to the argument that social media is a game changer. But at least one of my arguments is a lot of the fundamentals behind these populist revolts that we, we're now dealing with have actually been coming for 30, 40 years, not just a collapse of trust, but also the rise in volatility, which refer to people switching their vote from one election to the next, no longer being tribal, no longer being habi habitually loyal to, you know, my, my father voted Labour, my grandfather voted Labour, I'm Labour for life. Um, that golden era of mass democracy, we all now have a sense, is certainly weak, if not on its, on its way out. But the messages about how you kind of navigate this, this, new, this new landscape, what does a good messenger look like, about how to accept the fact that you might never win an argument, but you can still actually convey uh, key messages to your core audiences. My kind of big point here, in essence, is that finance guys always ask the same question, which is, when you look at Brexit, and you look at Trump, and you look at Salvini in Italy, or you look at Le Pen in France, or you look at populist revolts against the EU, does this signal that we are at the end of a period of political volatility in the West, as the angry old white man is replaced by the young, tolerant, liberal students that uh, we just heard about? Or instead, do those revolts actually signal that we are at the beginning of a new period of fragmentation and political change in the West, and that actually these revolts are just beginning to get going. Um, and if you want the answer to that uh, question, uh, you have to buy my book. <laughs> we've heard about Jeremy Corbyn. We've heard quite a lot about Donald Trump. Um, of course, it wouldn't be an event if we didn't hear about those two things and Brexit. Why do social networks, often driven by the power and the energy of younger people, put older men in charge? I'm slightly sceptical of the idea that this is all because of young people. I'll give you a few facts. Um, the, the, this is what, what I call the economist argument, which is that, well, let's just wait for the angry old white guys to die and everything becomes easier. Um, <laughs> the, the, the evidence is... Very muted laughter, actually, if you look at the, the demographic in this room. It's like a... Nervous, oh, nervous laughter. Nervous laughter. Um, the, evi the evidence is, points towards a much more complex picture. Trump won... 43% of white millennials. Le Pen was strongest among the under 40s. If you're looking at Salvini in Italy, his approval ratings are 60%. Macron's are 19%. Salvini's drawing most of his votes from young and middle-aged Italians. Sweden Democrats recently in the news, strongest among 30 to 45-year-olds, certainly not the angry old white guy. Marine Le Pen has closed the gender gap in France. She's as popular among young French women as she is among uh, young uh, French men. And also these electorates are far more diverse than our public debates would have us believe. You know, take Brexit. Every journalist has done a vox pop from Stoke and Boston. Nobody's actually gone to talk to the one in three black and minority ethnic uh, voters that voted to leave the European Union. We've heard almost nothing about the affluent conservatives that voted uh, to leave the European Union. And the same way the Trump electorate, you know, one in four earning over $100,000 per annum, very affluent, secure, stable. My worry, and maybe this is a sort of a, a, an issue that the people's vote and so on um, ho hopefully are thinking about and sort of, sort of interrogating. My worry is that we've latched onto narratives about this volatility that are far too simplistic. 
far too narrow, very, very misleading, not at all anchored in the evidence. Um, and actually, you know, if you look at the demographics of what's going on in the West at the moment, and Tally made this point earlier, which I think was really spot on. If you look at the debate in the US that's coming out around, you know, the coddling of the American mind and John Haight's work and saying that actually we do have a problem with iGen. And that problem, I mean, my first years, for example, were born in 2000. They have no memory of 9-11. They don't remember Tony Blair. Their first memorable election was 2010. They don't remember the crash. They weren't eligible to vote in the 2016 referendum. This is a new sort of up-and-coming generation that you know, we'll, we'll sort of hear a lot more from. But they are also quite closed down to the idea of viewpoint diversity. They're not as open as you would expect um, from young people that are supposedly liberal and at ease with the world and ideological um, uh, debate uh, and ideological conflict. That, to me, doesn't speak to a glorious, liberal, open-minded future. That speaks to a future that is going to be increasingly polarised. Kasha, polarisation, we see it in business as well. So if we take the Nike advert, they really backed a horse and they hoped that their loyal base would follow them. Within that... Does there have to be an acceptance within the corporate world that to build a loyal customer base, you're going to have to alienate some people? Nike's business strategy is not about getting more people to buy sneakers. Their, their strategy is not get every person in the world to buy one pair of sneakers. Their business strategy is there is a core group of people who buy a lot of sneakers and we want those people to buy more Nikes rather than Adidas or other brands. And so getting them firmly entrenched in the Nike camp makes a lot of sense for them. And if you think about what Talia talked about, this is a really good strategy because they're reinforcing a lot of the things that those people believe. It's a big voice reinforcing what those people believe. It was highly social, so it was on social media sort of doing all the things that the brain likes. So I think strategically it made a lot of sense for their business because it, it, it hit for that audience, the audience that they needed to grow their business, a lot of the things that those brains wanted. The people that um, were going to reject that message were not the people who they needed to grow their business. So all the people burning sneakers online were not the people who they were going to get a lot of money on buying their high-end sneakers. So I think part of what you need to know is, is who are the consumers that are really important to your business and how are you growing your business and, and what do those people care about and how are you going to engage them in, in this way. And then I think you can get really smart about how you sort of maneuver through the networked age. I think you can do this in a really powerful way that's very effective, but, but you have to really know what you're doing and know how to do it well. It takes a really good strategy. It takes knowing what your business is about. It takes knowing who drives your business, and it takes knowing what those people care about. So just sort of quickly as a follow-up, mm -hmm. I mean, data, therefore, mm -hmm. become hugely important. Mm -hmm not just around what type of trainers for Old English people want to um, <laughs> purchase, but also the values yeah. of the audience. So yeah. how important are data and what type of data do corporations need to be collecting to best understand not just the buying behaviours, yeah. but the beliefs of their yeah. customer base? Yeah, and, and, and I think there are 
two sides to this. I think you, you, know, you need really good data about who's, who's buying your product, how much of your product are they buying, at what intervals are they buying, all that stuff that allows you to really zone in on who are my highest value customers. Because for most businesses, you know, the 80-20 rule applies and 80% and of your business is generally driven by 20% of your consumers and you gotta know who that 20% is. You know, I've worked with lots of clients who don't know who that 20% is. So you gotta know who that 20% is. And then you've gotta know what they care about. So I would advocate doing a lot of social listening um, on that 20%. I think, you know, the world has, has gotten a little um, crazy about data. I think actually sitting down and talking to some of your consumers and having conversations and seeing what their lives are like and like sometimes that's a good idea. <laughs> I think we often think data points can tell us everything, but these are people and and you know, sometimes you actually need to engage with them, but you've got to get down to the to the nuance. And I think, you know, a company like Nike, I know cuz we work with them um, in the states does have ongoing dialogue with with their core consumers and I think, you know, this probably looked risky from the outside. There's lots of articles about how risky it was. I, I doubt they thought it was that risky. I think they knew that this was something that was going to play really well to their, to their core consumers. When everybody's doing data, when everybody's using data metrics, you don't have competitive advantage. It just, it, rather than becoming a magic wand, it just becomes another tool in the box. Now, what's interesting is that sport learned that faster than politics. Reason it why? Sport plays every week, politics plays every five years. So in politics, yeah, the, the success that Obama had in 2012, the success that David Cameron had in 2015, they thought they could replicate that with Hillary, with Remain. And it didn't because the competitive advantage of being closed. In fact, I think Trump and Leave actually used data better, in, in fact, than the the so-called experts from the Obama campaign who went over to, to Hillary's campaign. Um, and indeed, the G Jim Messina seems to pop up everywhere in the sort of successive failures of the last three or four years. Um, there's a lot of snake hole around about data. It is useful, but it is not a substitute for having a real message, a real emotional connection. And, and, you know, and, the, and the evidence of that is Hillary not going to Michigan, not going to Wisconsin, because the data was telling her no, when everybody, including her husband, who had some pretty good political instincts, was saying, you better get there. So I think it's a tool in the box. It's no magic wand. If there are any questions from the audience, I think now is the time to, to take them. Hi, um, Philip Inman from The Guardian. Um, one thing that confuses me here is that if, um, if this is about placing your trust in individuals and the story that they have to tell, uh, and if you relate that to politics and Jeremy Corbyn, you, you have someone with incredibly low personal poll ratings. You have, as Matthew said, uh, surrounded by people that no one's heard of. Would that mean that there's no possibility of a, a Labour government because you don't have that resonance? Um, so we're being asked to expect that people will vote for policies and an organisation, not the personalities at the top. Surely everything we've heard today is that it's the reverse that should be true if he's going to be successful. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was up against an exceptionally weak opponent in 2017. Uh, he does have, among his supporters, a very, very high intensity of loyalty. I mean, if you talk to Labour MPs, they say that the biggest block to voting Labour is Jeremy Corbyn and a lot of constituencies. 
I don't think there's any doubt at all that he also fired people up, and I think he does in some ways, in the same, the same way that Trump and Bernie Sanders do, also old men, represent a kind of degree of authenticity because they've been saying the same thing for so long. And, you know, they've emerged out of the woods with a message which must be true because they've stuck to it. Is that, that's, that seems to be the argument. I think Tally made a really interesting point, which is that you know, sometimes people will prioritise uh, somebody being on their tribe over things like competence. And for the last 20 years, political science has told us that competence is all that matters, and it's clearly not all that matters. And if you look at, at Corbyn, of course, um, he's not as weak as people suggest, otherwise Labour wouldn't be polling 39, 40% of the vote. They wouldn't be a two-point swing away from a coalition, a four-point swing away from a majority. But Prime Minister Corbyn is entirely plausible, right, given where, where the polling, polling is. But look at that video they released yesterday. Um, very little of Corbyn. One of the first words that comes up in that video is control. And uh, Tom made the really interesting point that, you know, the level field is being equalised. Well, la Labour, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think Labour have clearly looked at that referendum campaign and seen, you know, those three potent words that were emotionally resonant, take back control. And I think they've clearly now trying to co-opt part of that message around the Corbyn agenda. And it doesn't really matter if Corbyn isn't pop is popular or isn't popular. The fundamentals of his message for the many, not the few, uh, the system is, is rigged, uh, the rich get richer, the poorer get poorer, let's nationalise, let's shake up the economic settlement a little bit. Um, having looked at a lot of survey polling data and qualitative data, which is still data too, focus groups are data, we sometimes forget that, that message resonates big time, big time. Yeah, so first of all, just kind of a comment on, on what has been said. Um, control, I agree, is one of the most important things. This is something that we didn't talk about, so we talked about the motivation and priors. Um, but the other two, well, three most important things are A, control. So I think both Brexit and Trump can be explained by people feeling that they could change by taking control. That's one important thing. And people do have a sense of control and agency on social media, right? Finally, everyone can have their voice. They could, event, they could change. And what I'm actually surprised, at least in the, the scientific computing, I'm, I'm often surprised by people who have a very small amount of followers, but then their tweets are retweeted tens of thousands of times. That's quite interesting. There's kind of dissociation sometimes between a person who's not necessarily an influencer, but the message is so widespread. Uh, and so they, they have control for that amount of time. So I, I often talk about Twitter as the amygdala of the internet. So the amygdala is a part of the brain that's really important for emotional processing. And it does things really fast. So it's kind of the fast, intuitive <coughs> reaction. It's social, and the amygdala broadcasts very widely to every, every other part of the brain. And Twitter is, is very much the same thing. Things are fast, they're social, um, and they're broadcast quite widely. And I think that's one of the reasons that it really um, encourages an emotional reaction. Right? We don't have time to think about it. We're kind of doing it fast. And so it's our intuitive gut emotional reaction. I don't think these things are going to change, i.e., you know, if, if social media doesn't change structurally, then it would still cause us to have these quick emotional social reaction. So I'm not predicting anything that's better. <laughs> Without being too pessimistic, I mean, I, I do genuinely think all evidence points in one direction, and feel free to disagree with me, um, fellow panelists, but um, more volatility, more polarization, um, 
more previously apathetic groups coming back into the political system because they feel that they have voice uh, being represented by new messengers, by new communicators. Um, and to be completely frank, um, older established voices and parties that are not in tune with how the political currents are changing and which are remaining incredibly stubbornly committed to old formulas, to old ways of campaigning, to old beliefs that have been debunked by evidence 20 years ago, take social democracy continuing to believe that this is all about economic scarcity. You know, there's a classic example of a, an ideology refusing to move with the times and consequently reaching the historic lows that it is across much of Europe. Um, so it's a pessimistic diagnosis, but I think we need to get to a point where we accept where we are, we accept where things are going, and that can hopefully trigger a conversation about how to do things differently, which you guys have already started, by the way, today. You know, for the, for the brands out there, um, I think there's a huge opportunity. There have been many, many research studies that show people, and I can't say I blame them, sometimes have lost faith in political organizations, government organizations, all the traditional institutions that we looked to to do great things in the world. People have generally lost faith that they can do that. And they're looking to brands and corporations um, to fill that gap. So um, there's this great opportunity uh, for corporations and brands to step into that void um, and, and bring the hearts, minds, and uh, in reality, wallets of, of consumers with them. That's a, a bright spot uh, for marketers out there. Um, and I'm excited about it as somebody who works with uh, lots of different marketers across the company. Well, the truth is predictions have been shown to be a mug's gain over the last few years. I think the media political class have managed to get just about everything wrong. <laughs> Consistently, I mean, like they're on a kind of losing streak of like nothing I've ever seen. So I think conventional wisdom deserves a well-earned break. But that insurgency, that in the volatility, that instability can cut both ways. I, I, I think, you know, it's entirely possible that a better candidate against Trump could have beaten Trump. A better campaign against Leave could have beaten Leave. I think it's entirely possible that we could yet get a new vote on Brexit, possibly even stay in the European Union. And I do think there's a kind of fashionable despair, which Matthew articulated very well, which says it's all over, there's nothing we can do. We can always do something. We've got to regain some confidence in our sort of small L, small d, liberal democratic values. Because if we don't, it's the council's despair and we just give up and we go home. So, you know, we can learn how to do politics better. We can be, you know, we can establish emotional connection ourselves. We can be more insurgent. We can get different voices in and we can learn how to win again because that's called politics. Thank you to all our attendees and panellists today. And that's it for this edition of On Message. You can find out more about the Network Age by downloading the guide from our website, mhpc.com.
On Message is written and produced by MHP Communications and Mixonics Audio Production. You can find out more on our website, mhpc.com. And you can find us on Twitter, at MHPC.